Hello. Welcome to the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Thanks for joining us for what looks like another exciting episode. And it will be exciting, at least I think so, because this month we talk politics. Almost. In the past year, 2016, it's really been a doozy for many reasons. Some of our favorite actors and musicians died. We lost Alan Rickman, David Bowie, Prince. We can go on and on in that regard. Natural disasters devastated parts of the world. Brexit happened. Even the Olympics sparked controversy. It was a year of upending change, most notably encapsulated for many of us in the U.S. by a contentious presidential election, the likes of which we've not seen in modern history. And hopefully we never will again, in my opinion. Things got ugly. And the overall level of political discourse was lowered, regardless of where you sat on the political spectrum. Politics divided friends, families, and the entire country. We're at a point where sometimes the last thing you want to do is to think about or even talk about is politics, regardless of how strongly you feel about the subject. Political fatigue is real. And all of that was a concern here at Dewey Decibel headquarters as we were planning this new episode. How do we stay relevant, current, and talk politics, but without talking politics. What can let us do that? Well, it was easy. Presidential libraries and presidential history. This month on Dewey Decibel, we talked to three guests who guide us through the fascinating world of the presidential library and the history of the presidency. First, American Library's managing editor, Sunita Sinharoy, talks to Meredith Evans. She's the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta. They talk about what it takes to manage a presidential library, what it's like to work with President Carter, and much more. Next, I talk to Jody Cantor. She's an associate professor of theater at George Washington University. She's also the author of the book, Presidential Libraries as Performance, Curating American Character from Herbert Hoover to George W. Bush. Judy and I talk about her book and much, much more. And finally, we dig back into the American Library's vaults for an interview that I did last year at the 2016 ALA Midwinter meeting in Boston uh, with documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. I sat down with Ken and we talked American history, the presidency, and his new kid's book on the American presidents. But first, before we get into all that, a word from a sponsor. Subscribe to ALA Tech Source Publications, Library Technology Reports, and Smart Libraries Newsletter to stay up to date on the latest technology strategies. When you subscribe to ALA Tech Source Online, you get a full electronic access to both Library Technology Reports and Smart Libraries Newsletter, which includes access to their archives. With a subscription, you can share unlimited access across your institution and stay up to date on emerging trends in technology. You'll learn from industry-leading experts in the field, including Marshall Breeding, Jason Griffey, Bjorn Kim, and more. To learn more, go to journals.ala.org LTR, or you can just call 800-545-2433, extension 4299. Don't miss your chance. Subscribe now. At age four, Meredith Evans mailed $1.01 to then-President Jimmy Carter to help him, quote-unquote, be president. She also sent him a letter asking to have her birthday party at the White House. Carter declined both. But uh, in a weird twist of fate, years later, Evans is now working for that 39th president. Meredith Evans is the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta. She's also the first African-American woman to be appointed as a presidential library director. 
American Library's managing editor, Sunita Sinharoy, spoke with Meredith recently about her job at the Carter Library, her favorite pieces in the uh, museum's collection, uh, how, what it was like to work with President Carter, and much more. Now, this interview was featured in the, the bookend section in the new issue of American Libraries. That's our November-December 2016 issue. But we offer you here, right now, the full story for you to enjoy. What kind of broadly led you to this job? I think I was, I've been preparing my entire career to run a facility. So it's not necessarily this specific location, Mm -hmm. but um, it did match a lot of the criteria of things I was looking for personally and professionally. So professionally, it's called a library, but really it's an archive. Mm -hmm. And um, we actually have, because we have a museum, we have a permanent exhibit to um, connect with the archives and reflect the meaning and intent and the use of the records that we preserve. So for me, that was like the best of both worlds. And um, I think President Carter, this particular museum, President Carter has been sort of a going theme through my life uh, personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I think those two things combined just made it work. Well, can you talk a little bit about when you were four, you sent a letter and re-election? Yeah, so I actually sent a letter to President Carter when he was in the White House, and I invited him (laughs) to have my birthday party there. (laughs) And um, I drew lots of pictures. And then in college, or right out of college, I saw him teach Sunday school. And then, um, you know, now I'm at, I'm, you know, working for him. So I think it's sort of been this common theme. It's always been a president that I've admired. Um, he really, his moral compass, his principles and values, he's, he's maintained that through his entire life, and his post-presidency has been pretty amazing. So I think combined, it just it's just a good fit. Now, did he... Um to your knowledge, use that dollar and penny for his re-election? He sent it back. It's actually in the letter that he sent it back. Oh, um, really? He didn't. I still have the dollar, actually, and <laughs> um, the note he sent back. What is a typical day like for a director um, of a presidential library and museum? Well, like most libraries, it's the culture of meetings. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the interesting thing about a presidential library, I guess, there's some similarities to a public library that has a board. Mm. So we work closely with the Carter Center, which is the foundation side of the house. Um, we, um, I do a lot of a full day. I mean, I manage people and projects, right? Mm-hmm. Re- relationships and resources. That's what we do as a director. Part of our strategic plan is becoming one of the best and the top 20 best attractions in the city of Atlanta. I think we're the best kept secret. And the other part is a major piece of the strategic plan is is working on our branding. So we are the Carter Presidential Center, but the library museum are federal. And then the Carter Center side is the post-presidency work that's global, global initiative. You know, we have a branding challenge. People think Carter Center, they think library, you know, they don't always think the library museum and 
sometimes I don't always think the Carter Center. So I spend a lot of my time figuring out ways to bring repeat visitors to the museum and to the archive itself, making sure our doors are open to the public, not just to researchers who've mm-hmm. made an appointment or have studied us before. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that our branding makes it, there's a distinction that we're one together, we're collaborative and collectively strong, but we are our own institution and our own, uh, we have our own um, initiatives and agendas and projects that are different from the from the post-presidency work that he does. Mm. Well, what I mean, and maybe this is a question for someone else on um, on your staff. The kind of the visitors, the numbers. Um, do you have any kind of? Um, information? We average a little less than a hundred thousand people a year. Mm-hmm. Our reading, so I think, and that's from the that's our reading, our archive reading room, and our museum visitors. Okay. We are. We cater strongly to K through 12. It is if you're 16 and under, it's free. Uh, at the and that's at the wish of President Carter because he wants to make sure that we're accessible and uh, you know for everybody. And I think that's amazing. Mm. And I think our work is beyond just President Carter. And coming here, whether you're looking at documents or the 29 books that he's read, he's written, um, or the museum, I think it's an opportunity for people to see how, what a president does, what it takes to become president, what they do once they're in office, and how you can be engaged as a citizen hmm. and understand the issues much in a much deeper way. The 30-second soundbite on the radio or television, somebody's written a 500-page book, and there's been you know, 15 boxes of documents, of decision-making documents that got to that 30-second blurb you hear. Mm. I don't think, you know, informing the public of how the executive branch works and government works is a really strong part of our mission. Do you think that there's been more interest of late, um, especially being an election year? I definitely think so. Um, Election year always sort of... (laughs) Yes, I do. But I also think that people tend to not realize that we are, our work here is bigger than just President Carter, although we use him, he's our example of the Office of the President. You can actually look at the issues here. So we have an exhibit and we have strong records on energy and the environment. Um, We have lots of foreign policy with Camp David that's definitely going to be pertinent in this election as well. Mm-hmm. So I think um, getting past the man into the issues and into the actual office of the presidency is a huge part of what we do. And so, yes, I think the elections played a strong part in that in terms of increase. And I just think that we've just created programming and, and we're marketing ourselves in a way to invite people to, to learn more and become civically engaged. How often do you see the former president and his wife or family, and do they ever talk politics with you? <laughs> we don't really talk politics. Um, the Carters probably are here maybe once a month or so. Um, we go to different events that he attends, and then he's in the building probably once every month or so. And so I think, we, I mean, he and I don't talk politics because it's just not necessary. And I think he's very discreet. I mean, he's definitely very opinionated and vocal. Mm-hmm. And most of what you what he'll say, you'll see in the news, and it's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, 
So what do you guys talk about if it's not politics? Work. The, the museum, <laughs> um, the archives. You know, I, I run the library. Uh, we talk about events. For example, he just recently spoke at the library for a national conversation that the National Archives has been sponsoring all around the country. Mm. And he spoke about um, civil and human rights, something he's very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And that was really great. That's that's it really you know we do a little idle chatter about just life but for the most part we don't talk politics we talk business if there's something he needs if there's resources he needs he's always writing so there's Mm. you know Mm -hmm. something he needs and we work with the national park services that now is responsible for his the town in which he lives which is plains georgia so Mm. we work together on different exhibits and things like that so you're the first African-American woman to be appointed a presidential library director. That me. seems to be correct. Yeah. So what is the deal? Why has it taken this long? What do you hope to do? You see yourself as kind of a role model? I mean, I know role model is kind of a loaded term, but, <laughs> you know, wh- wh- how do you see your position in all of this? I think, I mean, I don't think it. I mean, I think this is the federal government, and I think people stay in positions a really long time. So if I'm not mistaken, I'm the third director here, maybe? I think third. I don't even think I'm the fourth third. So, I mean, and we've been open about 35 years or so, 30 years. So I think, you know, I think the federal government, like most institutions in our profession, people stay a, a long time, and when they stay a long time, you know, you don't have a large, there's not a large turnover. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity for new directors to come in. And now that we have new directors, an opportunity for new directors, and we're in a different point in our country where diversity is embraced a little bit more, I think, you know, I can step into that opportunity. I also don't think people understand, I don't think people know much about the presidential libraries and, and the work that the National Archives does and what positions are available. And um, yeah, I think we're kind of quiet about that. It's interesting because you asked if I felt like I was a role model. I don't think I'm a role model. I just, I feel like I've opened doors for other people and I, and I feel like whether I want to be or not, I'm an example to people, hopefully a hopeful example, right? That people can see that anybody can do this if you put your mind to it, if you um, work towards it, you, you too can be a director and, and work. And I think it's important for people to see people who look like them um, to motivate them to, for success. So I don't know if that's necessarily a role model or just optimism fit. What um, is the most favorite part of your job? I mean, you mentioned managing people. You really enjoy that. Would you say that that is the most favorite your favorite part of the job? I think that is the most favorite. But my favorite part of the job is, is watching people grow, and whether that's staff or whether, you know, in this instance I get to really see. I mean, I love when researchers find something and have the aha moment mm-hmm. and publish with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do love that. But I'm now in a setting where it's great to see my staff have that moment, and it's great to see... Um, the impact we have on young people. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's managing people, but it's also seeing that aha moment 
that anybody can have. And I get the benefit of having a museum as a part of this, too. So I get to walk through and see people go, I never knew that before. Mm-hmm. And then I get to see a, you know, a researcher go, look what I found. I never knew that before. Mm-hmm. And then I get to see a staff person go, oh, my God, did you see this? I've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's sort of like aha moments all day long. And I love that. Now that sounds like a true librarian. <laughs> See? <laughs> well, what makes you, so would you also say that that's, what, maybe this is related, but what makes you proud? Work-related-wise, what makes me proud is that um, libraries and archives are not forgotten. I think that makes me proud. I, I'm proud to represent something that's um, in, impactful to our society. And when people understand our, the value of libraries and, and think past the sh- shelving of books or, you know, you know, or, or archiving in paper, you know, paper and boxes, when they look past that and they see that the materials that we steward speak to the foundation of your future, um, that's what makes me proud. Um, do you have any favorite items? in the collection aside from your 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 own letter from when you were four, four. <laughs> I know, I was like, well my own stuff is pretty good um that's a really hard one i think um we have a solar panel that's one of my favorite items because president carter put a solar panel on the roof of the white house he put solar panels mm-hmm. and we actually have one so for from an artifact perspective the solar panel is one and then um, the other one would be um, there's lots of correspondence between well there's lots of minutes where Mrs. Carter has written notes because she sat in a lot of meetings mm-hmm. and I think that's one of my favorite things because it shows her role as first lady and how impactful it was um, she kept up with the issues she was never one that just you know, that talked about recipes. She was always one that was actually at the table. So ERA and mental health, some of her initiatives, um, you know, there's there's notes from both of them on documents. And I think that's pretty amazing. Thanks again to Sneed and Meredith for uh, that enlightening interview. As mentioned earlier, check out the book in section in the new issue of American Libraries for more with Meredith Evans. It feels like we were all just together, doesn't it? Soaking up the sun and often trying to escape the sweltering heat at the ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition in Orlando this past June. It feels like it was just yesterday, but it's time to start planning our next meeting. The next ALA Midwinter Meeting and Exhibits is heading to Atlanta in January, and as always, it promises to be an essential event. On top of all the programs, forums, networking events, and exhibit hall activities, Joining us at Midwinter 2017 are W. Camo Bell, he's a comedian and host of the United Shades of America on CNN, authors Susan Tan and Kwame Alexander, and also actor, director, all-around entertainer Neil Patrick Harris, you're going to love him, and many, many more. And I know it's early. You may not want to start thinking about 2017, but it's never too early to register for Midwinter. Registration is already open, so head to 2017.alamidwinter.org to get that process going. You won't regret it. We'll be seeing you in Atlanta. A visit to a presidential library can be many things. It's a survey of a president's career, 
what life events led him to the presidency, how he governed, what happened under his tenure. It's a look at his impact on the country and world, not only then, but also now. And it's a presentation of significant papers, items, and other memorabilia that have come to signify his term as Commander-in-Chief. The Presidential Library, it's, it's a crafted display designed not just to present the facts about an administration, but also mold a president's image and how he's viewed by the public. It's a performance, if you will. Jody Cantor, Associate Professor of Theater at George Washington University, explores this aspect of the Presidential Library, analyzing them through the lens of performance in her book, Presidential Libraries as Performance, Curating American Character from Herbert Hoover to George W. Bush. I spoke with Jody recently about her book and how a presidential library can be viewed as a performance piece. Jody, your book, uh, Presidential Libraries as Performance, Curating American Character from Herbert Hoover to George W. Bush, um, it's it's a fascinating book, but it's, it's very, I think, unique when it comes to maybe presidential library scholarship, um, because I think most people, when they think of this book, they might think that someone with uh, maybe a background in library science or museum studies may have written it. But you're an associate professor of theater in a theater department. How did you come to write a book on presidential libraries? Like, what was its inspiration, and it really takes it, and, and I guess to that, it takes a specific take on the libraries, as, as the title says, as performance. Like, how did you, I guess, uh, we'll, we'll start with the, uh, how did you come to write the book, and what do you mean by performance? Okay, well, uh, one thing I should say is that um, performance studies and museum studies uh, are increasingly uh, bedfellows, so so there's actually quite a bit of work being done on museums um, in the context of performance. Um, so I'm not completely original in that in that sense. <laughs> um, but I let's see, I came the first presidential library I visited was the Clinton Library, and it was fairly new at the time that I visited it, um, and I found it really interesting, and so I, it made me immediately curious to see the other two-term president, recent, you know, late 20th century two-term president's library, um, which was the Reagan Library. Um, so my initial thought was just to write a short piece about those two libraries, which are, in fact, very, very different kinds of places. Um, and then, you know, I just got curious about the Presidential Library as an institution and kind of the many of the libraries have similarly structured stories. Um, and so I was interested in all the permutations of that structure and um, just and in thinking more about what presidential libraries do in our culture, um, because I think, you know, there's there's actually been very little scholarship about presidential libraries, but to the extent that there has been, um, the tendency is to say, oh, well, they're just sort of bad history. Um, but, you know, it's certainly the case that if you want the most authoritative history 
of an administration, you probably don't go to the president and the president's best friends to get that history. But nonetheless, I had the feeling that these institutions were up to something else. Um, And so I wanted to think about what, what role are these institutions that we get a new one of every four to eight years, you know, what are they doing in our culture and, and what are they not doing that they could be doing? Now, now the, the performance aspect, I think that a lot of our listeners might be curious as to what that means and how does a, how does a, a library and a presidential center, how do they perform? Um, how do they use performance to, to mold a president's image? Sure. So um, I should start by saying that I'm I'm looking at them as performance, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit different than saying they are performances. Um, mm-hmm. But okay. the question I'm kind of asking is, what can we find out, figure out by thinking about these institutions through the lens of performance, which means, uh, for example, what kind of role are they asking the visitor to play? Um, What kind of role is the president taking on in this representation of his life and legacy? What, you know, when do presidents go off script? Um, and how does that change our ideas about them? Um, and then what kind of live, I mean, closer to the sort of traditional idea of performances, what kind of live responses does the presidential library, a, a specific presidential library, invite on our parts. And the most broad way of saying it is kind of what what role is this institution playing in our culture? What's its mm-hmm. fun- function? Yeah, was, um, in one certain section of your book, you discuss the um, the history of of the presidential library, and you 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 discuss. Um, FDRs, how um, his administration, him and his advisors, um, kind of started the presidential library. And it seems like they were very much aware of, of everything that you just mentioned, um, how the library could frame a president and his administration and the impact it would have on um, visitors. Uh, can you talk about a bit about that? Like, what was, when you, as you were researching it, is that, did you find that uh, as a consistent was that consistent through all the presidential libraries, this, this notion of, of performance in a way? I think to some extent. I mean, one of the things that I didn't know when I started out this project but that I learned very, very quickly um, is that, you know, another performance uh, – informed kind of question is what who's directing the performance right Mm -hmm. who's who's or constructing it um and in the case of the presidential library there are two main answers to that question and the first answer is the president and his foundation um and the foundation typically consists of you know, large donors and lifelong friends and 
sometimes people from the administration itself. Um, and those are the people that raise the money for the library, and they're the people who um, are overseeing the original exhibition. And then on the day that the library is dedicated, the direct directorship of the library is transferred to the National Archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the National Archives that, for example, would oversee renovations, uh, new exhibits, um, who at the, it's the archives who appoints the first literally director of the, the museum. And, um, so those are, those are kind of the two main directors of the performance. And as is probably immediately evident, they have different priorities, right? And different, um, uh, different designs on what the performance needs to accomplish. Um, So that I found really fascinating. And I think, well, I guess the story where that is the most um, push and pull over the directorship of the library um, is the story of the Nixon library, um, which, remained outside of the National Archives system for the first 30 years of its existence. And, in fact, it's a it's a great story because there are two sisters, the Nixon daughters, who were kind of advocating for opposite directors, um, not literal directors, but sort of uh, big-picture directors of the museum. Um, and... It took until 2007 for the museum to be reopened under the National Archives. Um, and the one major requirement of that transfer was that there had to be a, a Watergate exhibit, a new yeah. and, um, and so that was a kind of dramatic shift in the direction of that institution. Yeah, it was okay. one thing uh, I found really interesting in the book was when you when you're talking about the Nixon Library, um like you said there's a, as you're touring it there's a, or looking at it there's a definite you can see you can see the two parts of the library pre um pre-national pre-national archive takeover and post-national archive takeover. There are the 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 parts that existed before and then the parts that existed after which were Watergate. Yes. So you could see that shift. Into and, and that, um, I guess that would be like there. There's some, some d- d- quotes throughout the book that I found fascinating, and like one, uh, the, the foundation is less interested in the history of Reagan's presidency per se than in the commercial success of a Reagan library. And you know, said the Carter, the Carter Center is um, similar. And there's also you know, performance is a direct challenge to archival authority. Now, um, I think. I think this notion's fascinating, and it goes to I think museums in general. There's there's always an agenda, but um, mm-hmm. it can also I think be troubling. I think historically, like do presidential libraries do they have an obligation to the truth over the success of the center or image or the performance? 
Well, it probably depends on who you ask, but um, <laughs> and then of course there's the question of which truth. Basically, there's uh, I interviewed the then director of the SDR library for the book, and um, you know she articulates really well the notion that as you get further and further in time from the administration, it becomes easier and easier to represent um, events with more accuracy and more historical perspective um, so that um, and I think I would I would want to say that I think that is true, and I think it's also true that as the overall institution of the presidential library ages, um, that that time lapse has gotten shorter. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, it took 30 years for the Nixon Library to represent Watergate in any um, robust way. Uh, it took the Reagan Library about 20 years to represent the Iran-Contra uh, episode. Um, and the Clinton Library, when it opened, um, you know, at least provided some representation of the Monica Lewinsky stuff and the, the impeachment Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I think if you, if you look at that li library, one would hope that eventually the representation of that is a little more robust and a little less defensive, but, um, mm -hmm. but they didn't, it didn't occur to them to, well, it probably occurred to them, but they didn't make the choice to open the original exhibition without any, you know, representation of that event. There's 13 presidential libraries, right? Did you visit all 13 of them? I did. And I guess I should say for people who don't know that there are presidential libraries that are not part of that system um, that are historically older. So, like, there's a Lincoln presidential library, um, which um, is a fascinating place but is not part of this study and is not part of the National Archives. It's privately owned and yeah. run. Now, um, our, looking at all 13 of those libraries, um, are they all successful as performance? Sort of a cop-out answer, but it's also a true <laughs> answer, which is I think they all do different things well. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll, I'll pick out two of those things and name the libraries that do them. Um, so one thing that I admire in the LBJ library is um, <clears throat> their A, willingness and B, ability to represent Lyndon Johnson as a very complex character. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, somebody who there were many versions of, um, depending on what scene he was walking into. Um, and so I had, 
I admire that um, in that library. And, and you get you get people talking about that fact about him, but then you also wonderfully get to hear it in action because the Johnson Library has um, tapes of phone conversations from the Oval Office where you just vividly hear Johnson being a very different person depending on whom he's speaking to. And of course, we all are slightly different depending on who we're speaking to, but it's it's fairly dramatic in these uh, performances that you hear on the tapes. Um, so I I like that. I like the complexity of that. Um, and another thing I would say that the libraries, um, that few of the libraries really do is to grapple with um, uh, presidential failures, um, either in office or before or after office. Um, and I discovered, which intuitively makes sense, but I hadn't thought about it ahead of time. I discovered that the libraries that tend to be the best at doing that are the libraries of the one-term presidents. Mm. Um, and I think that's in part, in part pragmatically because they have more room to tell the rest of the story and and in part um, because I think by definition, these are not people who only succeeded, you know. Um, so I really admire that in, for example, the Ford Library. Um, there's a really fairly detailed exhibit on his campaign against Jimmy Carter and that includes like, you know, video of the mistakes he made and so forth. And I, I think that stuff is really valuable and, um, you know, libraries tend to shy away from it. I guess one other thing I'll say is that, um, there is only one library that I visited that, um, has an immersive exhibit. So an exhibit that in performance terms, you know, puts you in the center of a scene in the presidency. And um, that is the George H.W. Bush Library. Um, It has an exhibit that is called the Gulf War Theater, appropriately enough. Um, And it's an exhibit that really seeks to give the visitor some embodied experience of what it was like to be in the middle of that war. Um, And it's a very, I think, a very affecting exhibit and ambitious in the sense of really trying to not just provide information, but provide an immersive experience. Mm -hmm. You know, another question that comes up Ever since Reagan, uh, not Reagan Carter, um, is to what extent do you want the library to be a living, breathing civic institution? 
Um, so the Carter Library, a lot of its resources go toward the Carter Center, which does all this human rights and um, other kinds of work around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the Clinton Library has a School of Public Service attached to it where you can get a master's in public service. Um, and I think the Obama Library is um, that they're really thinking about that aspect of it, that they, um, you know, the Bush Library, actually, the H.W. George H.W. Bush Library um, has a focus on volunteerism. And so it you can actually walk out of the George H.W. Bush Library with a printout of organizations that fit your interests. Um, so. Yeah, I definitely expect that to be an aspect of the Obama Library. I'm very interested to see the Obama Library, too. It's just down the – it's going to be a few miles from our offices here at the American Library Association, so we're looking forward to to seeing that here in Chicago. Um, Jody, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been absolutely fascinating. Your book is – I think it's a must-read. Jody, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks again to Jody Cantor for speaking with the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Her book, Presidential Libraries as Performance, Curating American Character from Herbert Hoover to George W. Bush, is available from Southern Illinois University Press. The election season is over, for now. But that doesn't mean we can sit on our laurels. Library advocacy is ongoing, regardless of the time of the year, who is sitting in the Oval Office, or what party dominates Congress. For those just getting started in advocacy, or those looking for new approaches, Grassroots Library Advocacy is a book for you. This ALA edition special report cuts through the rhetoric and gets straight to modeling a plan of action for libraries big and small, and does this through a variety of means. It details the lessons learned by the authors during their successful campaigns to save New York City libraries. It instructs readers how to clarify their message, manage volunteers, and plan events, and it, also, and it also offers public relations strategies, including advice for dealing with political leaders and the media. This indispensable report goes beyond the what to do of library advocacy and explains how to do it right. You can find this book and much more at www.alastore.ala.org. Ken Burns is a national treasure. In his acclaimed films, The Civil War, Baseball, jazz, the war, and scores more. Burns not only redefined the documentary film form, he also captured the multifaceted essence of the American experience. He is also an author. His most recent book, Grover Cleveland Again, A Treasury of American Presidents, he explores facts and tidbits from the Washington through Obama presidencies, and it's all presented accessibly for school-age readers. It really is a fascinating book, really crammed full of knowledge. I sat down with Ken last January in Boston during the 2016 ALA Midwinter meeting. Uh, For a film and history buff like me, it really was an honor and a privilege to talk to Ken. We talked about his book, filmmaking, the presidential election, which at that point was almost a year away, and much more. A bit about the book. Um, It's a book for children, but... um when I've read of it, um, it really kind of just transcends age. There's like a really lot of valuable information in there um, 
government and civics in American history. I think everyone would really benefit from reading this book. Um, now you cite your daughters as an inspiration, a game that you used to play, that's like the name of the book. Uh, can you elaborate on that a bit, the book's genesis, and also was its universality, universality kind of, uh, was that intentional? Uh, I am rich with daughters. I have four daughters. Uh, my oldest is 33 and has a daughter of her own, and uh, my youngest is five. And I have put them to bed uh, all these many years by often reciting the Order of the Presidents. And they have very quickly, as four and five-year-olds are wont to do, pick up the entire list. And what is to the great delight is that Grover Cleveland has two non-consecutive terms. So you go Chester and they go Arthur, you go Grover, they go Cleveland, you go Benjamin, they go Harrison, you go Grover, they go Grover Cleveland again, exclamation point and then William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt, et cetera. And it's in this rather boring patch of presidents, and, um, and it's, it's exciting. And so I remember when my now grown daughter, Sarah, uh, was young, I said, I, I wanna do, let's do a children's book together called Grover Cleveland Again. Well, things conspire and that's not possible. Uh, now I've got my youngest, Willa, uh, after Lily and Olivia also went through this drill. Willa has now committed the presence to memory and insists on every social occasion demonstrating her prowess uh, wherever she can, that I said, you know, I'm really going to do this, and we've done it. We've got a book that will be good for the young four- and five-year-olds in their memorization. It's a two-page spread on every present, except for Grover Cleveland, who gets four pages. And it permits you to understand just the sequence of those presidents and, uh, and how they do. If you're a little bit older than that, if you're six and seven and just starting school, you might have a report in which you're learning how to read and you could understand more interesting things about them. Uh, who they were married to, what their children's names were, what their pets were. If you're a little bit older doing book reports at eight and nine and 10 and 11 and even 12, I think you're gonna find a great deal of information uh, about the presidents. And so uh, it's, it's a funny thing. It, it will also appeal to the, to the parents who may be reading it uh, because there's some humor and there's some interesting connections between the various presidents and, and all they've done. And so uh, there is a kind of universality to it. I've complained that we've spent most of our lives superficially considering American history, that we see American history only as a sequence of presidential administrations punctuated by wars. And so I've, I've sort of gone back on myself and doubled down on, on that tendency that says that in order to grasp American history, you do have to have a fundamental sense of its course, its skeleton, its backbone, and that would be the sequence of presidential administrations. It's really important to understand all the other forces, the bottom-up as well as top-down forces. And while this book doesn't do it, it suggests that there are many, many other stories out there. Mm -hmm. on, on a personal side, um, as a 41-year-old, I loved it because I'm related to John Adams, and that was one of the uh, press sections I got, it's like, wow, great-great-great-grandfather. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, we've, we've tried to cram as much as we can into each of the biographies. And so you'll find a kind of legend, a key that gives the basic facts of birth and death and party and, you know, time of administration and pets and wives and uh, party affiliations. And, and then there's a quote by them and there's a pretty good deep 
prose thing, which we've worked over the last few years to really refine and, and uh, distill into something that's compact and at times funny and at times sort of, wow, I didn't know that. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about a particular president? Is there one thing that really sticks out? You know what was interesting is that collectively the presidents have loved their wives. Um, there was even one president who was so grief-stricken by the loss of his wife that he commissioned a stained glass window in St. John's Episcopal Church and could see it from the White House. And everybody, T.R. and his, the memory of his dead wife and his adoration of his second wife. I mean, it, just an amazing collection of people. It's, it's really good that, um, uh, you know, T.R. had a, uh, little tiny toy pony that he took up in the elevator in the White House. There's just wonderful anecdotes all the way through from the beginning of the end, from George Washington didn't have wooden teeth. I mean, this is one of the great myths that comes down to us. So let's just explode that. But he had lots of falls. When he, when he came into the presidency, he had one tooth, authentic tooth left in his head. He brushed his, the teeth of his horses in his stable, had them brushed but he clearly had not had the dental hygiene that could keep him from having porcelain teeth and other sorts of teeth, but never wooden teeth. And one, one something that really struck me in the book was in the, the introductory notes. Um, you, you note the importance of understanding our past uh, to really impact change and understand the, the present. It's the, uh, the old adage, you have to understand the past or you can repeat it. And, but you really, um, you kind of specifically mentioned some of our country's missteps, specifically how we have to accept our differences. And, and our ability to do that uh, really is what makes the United States a great country. Um, can you, given the current political climate that we're in right now, those words seem really prescient to me. Can you d discuss that a little bit? And is that kind of like a driving force uh, between all of your work, this like using history, teaching history and documentary as a source for social change? We live in incredibly contentious times. We live in a media culture that is very interested. If it bleeds, it leads. And so our politics has devolved to a kind of argument, a kind of shouting match. Uh, if you want to have perspective on what's going on now, the best thing to do is to learn about the past. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. There are no cycles of history, but human nature stays the same. Human nature never changes, and it superimposes itself over the random chaos of events. And so we can perceive patterns and themes that emerge in American history. Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, and that's exactly right. And so as a filmmaker, I've spent my entire life uh, trying to hear those rhymes and understand uh, the way in which uh, history rhymes and that the past is very much part of the present, that all of the themes that are going on now that we think are so new, I can tell you another time where every one of those themes are happening or did happen. And that's very helpful. It arms you with a particular kind of information. Now, you can take one example of this, and probably for me, the most important example beyond the sheer fact of human freedom. Uh, Thomas Jefferson writes the second greatest sentence in the English language. It's the second sentence of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I'm stopping halfway through that sentence because having said that, he owned while he wrote that sentence. The first sentence, by the way, is I love you. When he was writing that sentence, he owned more than 100 human beings, didn't see the contradiction, didn't see the hypocrisy, and more important, didn't see fit in his lifetime to free any one of those 
individuals and set in motion an American narrative that was going to always have to, always have to deal with the question of race. The rest of the sentence, though, is pretty wonderful, too, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happening. He could have followed John Locke and said life, liberty, and property, but he didn't. He said the pursuit of happiness. Now, a lot of people think happiness is this God-given right to accumulate material things in a marketplace of objects, when in fact what the founders meant by capital H, happiness, was a lifelong pursuit of learning of reading, of getting to know what was going on. And the key to that phrase is not even happiness, it's pursuit. So we Americans are unusually restless and curious and experimenting and experimental and improvisatory. And, and we're a nation in the process of becoming. Uh, that's a pretty great thing to be, which gives us the possibility of learning from our mistakes and correcting them. And so all of that is embodied in a love of history. It, it refreshes, it's incredibly optimistic. When, when the recession of 08 came and people said, we're in another depression, I said, no, we're not. He said, what makes you so sure? I said, in the depression, in most American cities, the animals in the zoo were shot and the meat distributed to the poor. When that happens, I'll agree we're in a depression. History gives you a kind of armor that permits you to understand that kind of thing. You know, you can look at a particular politi politician's campaign and people say, oh, you know, this is entirely new. No, it's not. I can remember this date and this date and this date where a similar sort of character emerged and, uh, and all of a sudden that gives you perspective. You know, in, in astronomy, to fix more precisely the location of a place, you triangulate by finding another place. If you know your history, you can triangulate the present that much better. Uh, to that to, to education and specifically teaching history, I was a history student in college and I had a lifelong love of history and it sounds like you did as well. Um, oh, many people don't though, and I think that uh, some fault can be lied at, at, at the public education system for the teaching of history. Um, but I think your work, your, your, your many films, has brought history alive for many people who would otherwise perhaps not um, be interested in history. Um, can you talk about that a bit? Um, what you feel your responsibility is as, as, as a historian, as a filmmaker? Well, first of all, I'm a filmmaker and I'm interested in telling stories. More on that later. Uh, I do think that we've done a terrible job in teaching history. We've made it seem like castor oil, so, castor oil something you know is good for you but not good tasting. Uh, history is the great pageant of everything that's come before this moment. And the word history is mostly made up of the word story. And when we tell stories, which is the way human beings organize everything, honey, how was your day? does not begin, I back slowly down the driveway, avoiding the garbage can at the curb. Unless, of course, somebody T-bones you when you pull out, and then that's exactly the way you tell it. So we edit that human experience, the chaos of human experience, into some order, and that's stories. It's hugely helpful. It's the initial form of communication between human beings. It's a, it's a great um, balm against the ultimate terror, which is none of us get out of this alive. We keep the wolf from the door by telling each other stories. And so I think if we can put history into that same fashion, that pageant of everything that has come before this moment, this moment, then history seems like available. It seems bottom up as well as top down. It doesn't seem like a horrible uh, lesson that you're forced to take, but something that actually uh, will give you uh, tools to deal more um, 
actively and sort of muscularly with the present. That's a, that's a good thing. And I don't, I feel a responsibility as a filmmaker, I'm an amateur historian, I feel responsibility as a filmmaker to tell a good story. I hope I'm learning how to tell stories better. We work with a lot of really talented people and I hope that I can look back across the arc of the films I've made and said, you know, I, I'm learning how to tell a story better and better and better and how to find and identify those good stories and, and isolate them. That's, that's always what it is. The fact that all of them have been in American history is just the accident of my birth. It's what I happen to be involved in. So my responsibility is to tell a good story. And I know very well the secondary responsibility is to get the history right. It's not that I don't interpret it. It's not that I don't exclude or include things, which is its own subjectivity. But I'm interested in telling good history as well. What role did the library play for you as a child growing up? You talked about your, your daughters and you learned history then as a young age. When you were their age, I guess a better question would be, when you were their age, what section of the library would you be found in? I would probably be found in the library in Newark, Delaware, and Ann Arbor, Michigan in nonfiction. My brother seemed to be consuming novels and, and stories, and I seemed to be wedded on reading encyclopedias and uh, stories about science and explorers and, and real things. Um, and I loved it. I loved the act of going with my mom or my dad to the library. I loved going when I got to be a certain age on my own. I loved the fact that a library card, it was the first idea I ever had in my life. First thing that I ever said that I was somebody that was not a part of the hand I was holding. That's a big thing. And then libraries have turned into the most important places in my work for the last uh, 40 years. I'd like to thank Ken Burns for taking time to speak with me. His book, Grover Cleveland Again, A Treasury of American Presidents, is available from Knopf Books for Young Reader. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'd like to thank all of our guests, American Library's Managing Editor, Sunita Sinharoy, and also ALA's Conference Services for helping arrange my interview with Ken Burns. You're all the best. Well, join us next month for a very special episode of Dewey Decimal one that finds us looking inwards at ALA itself to showcase the incredible people that make the association work day in and day out. Now, some of you might not know this, but ALA is filled not just with librarians, but also published authors, musicians, and many more. So please, join us for a peek behind the ALA curtain. And as always, visit us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave a comment. Ask a question. We want to hear from you. And for you iTunes users, please rate us if you can. Now, these ratings, they don't only help us with the rankings, but it also helps us, it helps other listeners find us. So please, do it. I thank you in advance. Once again, I'm Phil Morehart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, and this has been the Dewey Decibel Podcast. In order to grasp American history, you do have to have a fundamental sense of its course, its skeleton, its backbone. <laughs>